Paul, I have been thinking a lot about white supremacy since our last episode. Specifically, white supremacy culture in the workplace. I have an idea that I want to share with you, and I'm really interested to hear what you think. It has to do with shifting the label for that workplace culture. I think labeling the culture inequities in the workplace as white supremacy culture may cause a disconnect for many people. And to be honest, it causes a bit of a disconnect for me as well. Equity in the workplace is extremely complex. So much goes into it. The white-black binary and hierarchies are, as we have laid out in detail, omnipresent. And white supremacy exists. The four tenets from the Anti-Defamation League that you laid out last episode are most certainly the reality of our society. And with that, when you explain the white supremacy culture characteristics in the workplace by Tima Okun, the characteristics that you laid out, remember we really talked about denial and defensiveness, individualism, quantity over quality, I'm completely aligned that those exist and are upholding inequities. It's the label of white supremacy culture where I want to have a discussion. The angle that I am going to propose is to label it as dominant culture, and I'm going to make my case as to why. This is The Modern White Man, the podcast where myself, Paul Johnson, and me, Ken Lawrence, discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating an equitable society. All right, so Paul, it's been a few weeks. I don't know how many weeks has it been. Has it been months? Maybe a be. month. Might yeah. be a month since we've posted new episodes because such is life. And we've had life updates for mm-hmm. both you and I. What's been going on with you? Well, a big thing for me is I'm going to be leaving, not fully leaving, but mostly leaving the entrepreneurial life and going back to the nine to five world. So I got a new position in, in a talent management role at a pretty big organization yes. I'm excited about. Nice. Um, Congrats. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to miss that freedom, flexibility. I'm going to miss also being with my daughter, Marae, every day. That's going to be tough. But I think this podcast has really gotten me excited to get back into the work world because although entrepreneurism has been fun, I haven't really been able to apply anything we've been talking about in the workplace, right? Because mm-hmm. our focus really is in the workplace right. and what role white men can play in advancing DEI initiatives in the workplace. Of course, you can do that anywhere in your community and in the world and in your life, but there's a lot of opportunities in the workplace. So I'm really excited to to apply some of the things we're talking about. And I think that could provide some really good fodder down the road, obviously, for a podcast. So but with that, Marie is going to daycare yes. um, starting Monday, and I'm I'm really yeah, lots of feelings around that. Excited, nervous, the sad. daycare life. Get ready to like get sick all. Yeah, the time. that's what I'm. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, build up that immune system. That, yeah. So probably uh, not not a bad thing, but it's it's going to be an adjustment, a change. But overall, I'm I'm excited. So yeah, yeah. Millie just had hand, foot, and mouth disease, mm. and like got me sick. And mm. it was a really good time, you know, really fun. She was up all night with these really painful rashes. And I just had oh, to hold God. her for like two days straight. So that you have like lots to look forward to with the daycare life. All right. So you're making me rethink <laughs> things at the 11th hour here. Yeah. <laughs> I might need to call my boss yeah. and say I changed my mind. But That's right. No, no the daycare good. is good. the best yeah. because first off, she has so much fun with her little friends. Mm-hmm. And then also it's nice to be like, all right, I'll see you in a few hours and yeah. do your thing. It's yeah. like pretty yeah. great. Do you I'm get, pumped for you. Do you get updates from the daycare, like what she's been doing? And Everything. That's fun. It's awesome. It's like yeah. it's 
technology today it's like when they eat when they go to the mm-hmm. bathroom what type is it when they nap when they get up all this stuff and they message each other and we could it's it's pretty cool like i think it wouldn't enjoy it as much if it was like the old days you just dropped your kid off and you're like i hope they're doing all yeah. right but like now it's like we have an eye on them at all times essentially for yeah. better or worse <laughs> you know if they went number one and number two that's really important to know yeah. in the day you need yeah. to know that okay you good. need to know what you're all right i feel with. so much better now <laughs> you might have a battle at night yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, so what's up with you? What's what's new with you? Well, uh, I had a second daughter, so now we have now we have two under a year and a half. So we really didn't mess around. It's like let's just have two daughters, (laughs) you know? Let's go, and um, it's been good. I mean, crazy. All of the folks out there who have more than one, it's like you don't really get a break anymore. You know what I mean? It's like you're always one of you is always on one of the kids, Mm -hmm. which is great. You know, that's what Mm -hmm. we knew was going into it. So Mm -hmm. her name's Sylvie. So two daughters, pretty fun. Yeah. yeah, Millie and Sylvie. So yeah, you and I have been busy. And we've also been working on stuff on the side. Like, So it feels good to sit back down and have a podcast. Because sometimes Absolutely. you like work on stuff so much. And I'm always like, I just want to sit and talk. Mm-hmm. Talk with Paul about racism. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <Let's just laughs> That's our favorite. Yeah. It's our favorite relaxing to, yeah. thing. We got a cup of coffee yeah. here. We're doing it in the morning. Yeah. Just sit back, relax, <laughs> talk about racism. I need my that's, fellow. That's how I, that's how I like... Yeah, de-stress. Yeah, yeah. You're like my my fellow white man working towards anti-racism. Yeah. It's like, hey, I need to unpack some stuff with Paul. Yeah. So it's been some time. No, yeah. On a serious note, that's really important to have yeah. that person. So yeah, no yeah for listeners out there, find that person, find that community to, to unpack the stuff, talk about stuff. So yeah. hopefully we provide the, the platform for you to, to do that as well. So Absolutely. Yeah, and especially with something stuff. like what we're talking today with, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about white supremacy last episode, which you laid out really well as a very heavy topic it's like a very trigger word for many people and it's like how do you wrap your head around white supremacy and as i mentioned i was i've been thinking a lot about white supremacy since then and like the characteristics in the workplace and as i mentioned i've been i don't know if like wrestling with i guess you could say i was kind of been wrestling with that label of thinking about inequities if we put the the white supremacy label on there is that the way my mind is thinking about inequities in the workplace, I guess, is that, mm. you know, there's so much kind of pushback and that trigger with that. Is that the way to think about the workplace equities way I'm thinking about it? So I've been thinking about it a lot and writing about it a lot. I think I said last episode, I'm like, I need to like write about this stuff because that's how I help get my mind around it. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm going to attempt to do today, Paul. And I'm excited to like hear what you think, to think about how... I am thinking about workplace inequities and Okun's characteristics as the dominant culture characteristics. This whole episode, how I lay this out, because I really want to make like a good why I'm thinking about this. It almost feels like an academic theory. So a like, hypothesis? Please, a hypothesis. We haven't talked about oh that in a while. Oh my gosh. We haven't I'm... had a white man hypothesis in a while. <laughs> That's Love what it. this is. Yes. This is my, I, this is maybe the biggest hypothesis I've had <laughs> thus far. So please Love jump it. in whenever so I don't put you and all of our <laughs> listeners to sleep with this hypothesis. All right. So how I'm kind of thinking about this as dominant culture characteristics, you know, when thinking about dominant culture, that has really come up a lot in our past episodes. Um, I've been listening back to some of our episodes and it's kind of interesting how we get to dominant culture quite a bit when we start talking about race. And so we, throughout our 18 episodes, we've explained a bit about what dominant culture is. But let's give a robust definition here. I want to start first by going back to, if you remember way back, our episode on succinctly explaining racism. And we quoted an article by Alicia Shears called To Dismantle Systemic Racism, 
white people must be willing to give up their power. And she had like such a good way of explaining dominant culture that really clicked with me. So I want to revisit that here quick. So I'm going to quote a part of what Alicia Shears said to remind us um, and then think about how that rolls into a definition of dominant culture. So Alicia Shears from that article says, quote, white people have a lot of power in the United States. A majority of our country's educators, superintendents, governors, lawyers, doctors, CEOs, venture capitalists, and journalists are white. White people effectively have the power to decide what we teach in schools, the laws we must abide by, which medical studies get conducted, the businesses that get funded, and which news stories and films get the green light. By monopolizing power across industries, white people have greater power to shape dominant cultural norms expectations and rules in society, end quote. So the dominant culture is the cultural norms, expectations, and rules in society that benefit the dominant group to uphold their power and position in society, right? So thinking of a dominant group, and we hear like dominant culture, that is implying that it is superior to other groups, right? And it's almost like a caste system, right? In fact, that is exactly what it is. It is a caste system. And I love the way of looking at it this way because I'm currently reading Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And it's such a good book. And I always like finishing a book typically before I talk about it or quote <laughs> it. But I am I am reading it and I'm not that far into it. But so far, it's even like shed a lot of light onto it. It's yeah, you don't really... know how it ends. She might, at the end, you might be just kidding. Like, I didn't oh, yeah. mean any of this. This is all BS. <laughs> I proved like... myself wrong. Yeah, yeah. It was like the middle school tests. Do you remember that? They're always like, read the test first. And I had one. Oh, yeah. And you work through it. And the end question was like, to get an A, don't answer any questions. I've never seen that yeah. before. Ooh, that's. Yeah. Ooh. So if Isabel Wilker- Wilkerson is doing that with this book, I'm yeah. I'm really there's no going back when you have a podcast <laughs> out there. Uh, but she, you know, it, it's it's really clicking with me. I think it really aligns with what you and I have talked so much about through this process to think of it as a caste system. So the way that Wilkerson simply and clearly explains how race is integrated into the dominant caste is really helpful. Because clearly race is critical, right? As like the quote by Shears shows, it's white people with the power. And so Wilkerson states, quote, In the American caste system, the signal of rank is what we call race, the division of humans on the basis of their appearance. In America, race is the primary tool and the visible decoy, the front man for caste. Race does the heavy lifting for a caste system that demands a means of human division. She continues by saying race in the United States is the visible agent of the unforeseen force of caste. Caste is the bones. Race is the skin, end quote. So a caste system, which clearly has a dominant group and non-dominant groups, and it's in a hierarchy, right? So it's like the one, two, three, you know, down the, down the list. That's the bones, what holds up our society. And race is what our society has used as the signal of our rank in that caste system. So that's in the United States, right? Other societies use different signals for rank in their caste system. So the most well-known one is India, right? You may have heard of India's caste system that has a really well-defined caste system that has been in place for a millennia. Like it's, it's still around today. It's been around forever. Their signals have to do with family, occupation, lifestyle, religion, among other things. 
that's what defines one's social status and place in the caste system. The lowest caste, they're called the untouchables. And like in India, you're not even supposed to marry outside of your caste. So, you know, the United States is not different from other societies. Like we're not the only ones who have created these hierarchies or this caste system. But how ours is defined is that race is the front man, right? The skin of it all. That is what we have used to really identify where people fall into this hierarchy. So in any caste system, it all comes down to power, right? Those in power who create the rules to uphold their power and keep others down. So race being our signal and white people being in the dominant caste and creating the dominant culture is to uphold that power, right? You know, Alicia Shears, she continues to say in that article that, quote, many of these rules and norms appear race neutral on the surface when, in fact, these power structures privilege whites and disadvantage blacks. This allows white privilege to be reinforced and the power possessed by white people to go unchallenged. These race-neutral rules are taken as matter-of-fact social norms, end quote. Okay, so we're bringing this all together because this is why this is like a academic hypothesis, right? <laughs> okay, so... I can see you getting so excited to bring this home right now. Let's bring it home. <laughs> okay, so race is the identifying factor in our caste system, okay? So we covered that. Our race in this country, in our society, must be acknowledged and unpacked Another word I feel like we haven't been using nearly enough lately. Oh, yeah. Right? We need to bring that back. Because it is the single most important factor in our society placing us right off the bat in the arbitrary caste hierarchy. It's literally what you see and immediately your mind kind of places somebody in that hierarchy. The fallback privilege and barriers that are given to the respective races and what allow white people to maintain their dominant position and for other white people to move into the dominant group much easier. So these dominant cultural norms, expectations, and rules that have been created by the dominant group are applied to the workplace as well, as we have talked about. In many episodes, we've laid out examples of this, like what is considered the proper way to speak, what is considered the proper education and the ideal schools, what is considered the proper experience, what is considered merit, the importance of connections, And then Tima Okun's cultural characteristics that you laid out are the more subtle, many times unspoken ways that we do things around here, right? That benefit those in power. So examples that you shared, Paul, from last episode, the one right way, either or, individualism, progress is more, urgency, et cetera, et cetera. Those with power as the dominant group have created and perpetuated all of these. So here is where I make the distinction between white supremacy culture and dominant culture. Those who have created these norms are, yes, white people, right? But not just any white people, white men. And not just any white men, white men with power, i.e. rich, well-educated, well-connected white men. Then there are layers within that. There is gender identity, there is sexuality, there are socioeconomics, there is geography, all of which contribute to a constructed dominant group that aims to uphold their dominance. So if you think about this caste system or this caste hierarchies that we've talked about, it's almost like if you're looking at a piece of paper and you have the caste system laid out, right away what you see, that's where you're placed on this, right? So race is our Mm -hmm. signal. Mm -hmm. So everybody is race with white at the top, black at the bottom, and then other identities in between. 
And then within that, it's kind of like you turn the page and within mm. that cast system, there are more things, right? Mm. And it kind of narrows down the more pages that you turn and the more things that you include, the more identities that you include. So that is why I believe that white supremacy culture in the workplace isn't going to address all that goes into equity. I also believe that by labeling it as such, it can come across as too, almost too simplistic. And as Okun has written about herself, can become weaponized by both people fighting for equity efforts and those resisting equity efforts. You know, you and I could be pro-equity efforts and be like, hey, you're displaying white supremacy, right? And then mm -hmm. people kind of resisting equity efforts would be like, oh, I'm sure you're just going to say this is white supremacy, right? This is white supremacy. Like, it becomes weaponized really easily, this term, as Okun has written about. So all of Okun's white supremacy culture characteristics, I agree with. And they're really, really insightful and really good. They are in place. They create and maintain inequities for the dominant caste in our workplaces and society. Where my alteration comes in is to label those characteristics as dominant cultural characteristics instead of white supremacy characteristics and have white supremacy as a characteristic. And then I have five examples as to why. <laughs> oh, he's not done, folks. <laughs> but I feel like we need a breather because before I get into all my examples, because that was, see, I told you, I probably have put a few listeners to sleep <laughs> with that long, but I really wanted to be intentional about how I'm thinking about this. You know, this, this caste system, the dominant caste, as Wilkerson labels it, and the dominant culture and thinking about how that has suppressed so many people mm -hmm. and race, how that fits into that dominant culture. I just love how she's like, that's the skin of this system. Like mm -hmm. that is the identifying factor that the United States has used. And it just shows how arbitrary race is again, right? Because it's like other societies have cast different caste systems. And so our arbitrary skin is white and black. We have to recognize that. But then there are so many different dominant mm -hmm. characteristics that really continue to hold all people within that down. Yeah, I really like this because it really lays out and makes me think a lot about like how sometimes I just focus on race and how limiting that is and how inaccurate that is. Like we can't just focus on race because there's all these other components that create a dominant culture that create a caste system. Mm -hmm. And it, it's sort of this like, yes, I think there's merit and value to focus on just racial equity, right? Like have that laser focus. However, the downside could be you miss out on all these other identities that are being marginalized that are part of this caste system that are intersected, intertwined with race. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you might target race inequities and you might make big progress on that, but you're also overlooking all these other inequities that are happening. So I think that's the unintended consequences maybe of white supremacy culture. And I don't think there's anything bad per se about focusing on that, right? But I think it's a really important point to say that's a subset of what we're looking at. So a characteristic. A characteristic, Mayhaps. perhaps. Um, Mayhaps. But I like I like that visual you have of, of the caste system and then sort of this you lay like a um, remember those old remember you used to have the projectors in school and yeah. then you put one of those like clear pieces of paper on it and then yeah. it rejected i'm thinking that was a clear piece of paper with race and then you put another clear piece of paper with gender and you kind of layer it on right but race is like you said the skin it even makes me think of like you know when we say white men i think that's even falling short of when we talk about who has power we really sh we should be saying white cisgendered men mm -hmm. well that's a great point right? right and that's why that's among my five examples mm -hmm. here because that's exactly yeah and even within white cisgender men then there are further characteristics yep. 
throughout our society's history, we've built on certain characteristics of white cisgender men, right? Like a way to yep. act, like traditional yep. masculinity. We're getting ahead of oh, ourselves shoot. here. We're getting like, so what I have here is like five examples of kind of, of exactly that, of, mm-hmm. of what I'm thinking about why having white supremacy as a characteristic in the overall dominant culture kind of covers some of those different layers, right? Yeah, I want to know what that projector thing is called. That's a great way of yeah. saying it. But like, that's exactly we, right. Everybody who's like 32 and older out there is like, yup. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Everybody younger is like, what? Yep. The projectors and you layer on things. Teacher would turn off like, the lights yeah, and you're like, yeah. oh, here comes the projector. And then you're push- 16 and you're on five hours of sleep. You're like, listen, yeah. I am i can't stay awake right now. Yeah, so yeah, you need to right. turn the lights back on. You're like, well, first the lights go off. And you're like, oh, yes, a movie. And, and then you see the wheel of the projector. You're like, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but no, I, 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 this is really, I really love this discussion because even when I look back at the white supremacy characteristics, I saw lots of undertones of gender, of education, socioeconomic status. So it's not those, even those characteristics, it isn't just about race, right? There's a lot of characteristics that had these, like even individualism, this like rugged individualism, like that speaks to me that like sort of that masculinity of you got to do it yourself and be tough and get over you know get over yourself if things get hard and don't ask for help from other people right so yeah. so there's just all this intersectionality going on with some of these characteristics that yeah just don't tell if you say race it just that's not the whole story yeah. however of course they're used and weaponized to uphold racism totally. right and racial inequities however it also upholds gender inequities and many other inequities as well yeah. it, you know, education-based inequities. There's the worship of the written word yes. is one of them, right? Yes. Um, so that that's that's a dominant cultural value that oppresses like native cultures, for yeah. example, that are more oral traditions. Mm-hmm. So there's it's just so much more complex and dynamic uh, to say this is race-based. Um, so yeah, I love that we're bringing that to light. Great. So let's talk about some of these then, uh, and you know, add at the end if I missed any, but like kind yeah. of the five big ones that I'm thinking of. Again, these are five reasons I, I'm thinking about dominant culture in the workplace mm-hmm. that white supremacy maybe doesn't encompass or mm-hmm. the result that labeling that white supremacy may have. So I'll just mm-hmm. lay some of these out. I'm like so, <laughs> I'm like so, so worked into up it. right now. So worked into it. I love it. I'm like physically need to take it. Do you breath. get like this? Is this like the kind of level of energy you have like when you play hockey? Is, it, is, there, is there like a... This is more probably. More. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hockey doesn't do it for me. Like trying to create an equitable society. Oh, oh that's great. All right. So the first one that I thought of is... I'm always really conscious about how race has been used to uphold power for people in power. And so let me explain, because we have discussed a lot in past episodes about how one of the main reasons that a racial divide has been so effectively and devastatingly used is to separate people of color and lower socioeconomic whites. You know, it's almost like avoid a lower socioeconomic uprising, right? So I fear the same thing in the workplace when talking about white supremacy. And we can all envision a traditional org structure, right? It's a pyramid with C-suite on the top and it trickles down. Statistically, it's incredibly top heavy with white people, particularly white men. And as you go down the pyramid, there are more black, indigenous, and people of color, but there are also still many whites, right? So many of those white people do not have their personal cultural norms, expectations, and rules match those of the dominant culture. 
So when they hear white supremacy culture in the workplace, they might be thinking, well, what the hell is that about? I'm white. I most definitely am not at the top. There are many people of color above me on this org chart. You know, what is this going to result in? We've talked a lot about this, right? Anger, resentment, pushback to initiatives. You know, they hear that Ken and Paul are coming in to talk to them about diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're going to be kind of like, you know, upset. I'm making $40,000 a year. You're telling me that this organization is built on white supremacy? I don't make as much as people above me and, you know, people of color. Like, that's really where that denial, defensiveness, be like me, kind of all those things can come into place. And then you take into consideration the last place aversion that you have laid out that I love in a past episode. And like, they're going to be most mad at people of color instead of taking it out on the people in power, right? And that's partly because there's this, sorry to jump in real quick, but I just had this thought. I think deep down, we're like, white people should be in power. So we don't get mad at people in power, a white person in power, because they're like, that's where white people should be, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. And so so that's why the, the focus doesn't go up right? It goes down because people of color should be down, right? Yep. But I bet the, a lot of the focus goes to the people of color in higher positions. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's probably where a lot of that anger or, or people of color are on the same level who are and you're vying with them to get a promotion. Right. So, but yeah, got nothing wrong with having a white cisgender male in power because that's who should be in power. Right. right. It's right? those like hierarchies that we've talked about in the past, how those expectations are so dangerous. And like, yeah. we just expect to have so much more maybe than we have because we should and those who are white men who have it make sense. The expectations is such a, yeah, that that can result in anger. That was in our anger and violence episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, but like, let's change the lens. So let's say instead we framed it up as dominant cultural norms and characteristics. So Mm. those white people and their fellow people of color lower on the org chart might look at each other and be like, yeah, why is it that those privileged people above are so much more valued than us? That their generational access to higher institutions give them so much more than us and all of these things. Like, I honestly think it would result in addressing straightforward inequities while also getting more people bought into it. Mm. And, you know, it's also important here for me to think about the ladder of empowerment, it is really helpful for me to have this framework to think of people in different statuses and that not being bad, right? Like all of us have to go through each status, but being intentional about what each person needs at different statuses to help them move into the next one. So let's be straight about the reality here. The majority of white people to this day are still in statuses three and four, I'd say. Be like me in denial and defensiveness. It's the reality. It's an unfortunate one, but that's why this ladder is so helpful for me because it gives patience and compassion to those who don't have a lot of experience with this work and are at a lower status. They just aren't ready to have white supremacy culture thrown at them. And I think that we have to be intentional about really how we're framing this up, right? And so to think about how can we get more people on board with this and how can we get more people to see like the bigger picture, I think framing it up as dominant culture would be really helpful. And a really important thing to pause and call out here as well as white people is that this is not a scapegoat, right? It's not a scapegoat for white people. Race is, again, the identifying factor in our caste hierarchy. White supremacy exists. It is part of the dominant culture, needs to be destroyed, right? It's part of the dominant culture. That's why I like having the white supremacy as a characteristic. Those white people at the bottom of the pyramid, we still have to do identity work as white person to understand how their race impacts their identity and make efforts to move into the next status. 
Yeah, I know you've said this, and I just want to make sure people don't get the wrong idea. What you're saying, we're not saying is like we don't use the term white supremacy. Like you're not saying just throw that out, right? Right. Like you're saying it's there, but it's maybe not the the lens. I like that the lens, the the the, the that first page, mm-hmm. right, that we look at. Because um, when we talk about equity work, we have to name white supremacy because if we want to reduce inequities, that means, and equity means, some people get some things, others don't, mm-hmm. right? So that means some people of color get some advantages and white people don't, Yeah. right? So so we have to name white supremacy as the reason why that's, why that, why that's happening. Yeah, like, um, like it is a characteristic. So let's say mm-hmm. the visual of this like pamphlet on the front page, equity dominant cultural norms right and in that is a list of these characteristics that Timo okun has laid out so the denial defensiveness mm-hmm. worship of the written word right to comfort mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know all of those they're in these as characteristics among those is white supremacy so like mm-hmm. maybe the first page in that pamphlet is like mm-hmm. the first characteristic we're going to talk about is white supremacy because that is again like the the first thing that identifies somebody in the dominant yeah. position so it's definitely not getting rid of it it's like a big focus but it's a characteristic among all of the other characteristics the other reason why i like this and having the dominant culture as the first page is culture is very much a real thing race is very much not a real thing right so point. i think the goal is to rip that page out mm-hmm. right but leaving culture there right mm-hmm. obviously we want to we want to get rid of the dominant versus non-dominant, but right. we don't want, we're not about unpacking or dismantling culture, right? We're very much about dismantling race, but culture is a thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a part of our human experience. So, so that's why I like it again, having as the foundation, cause it's, cause it's a real thing. Yeah. I, yeah. Making something like race, the foundation of our work. It's like, well, if we dismantle that, then there's nothing left. Good then point. like people are like, whoa, okay, now we lost this identity. Where, what is my identity now? Yeah. So we got to bring culture into the conversation, have it foundational. And, and we've talked about that at helping our own personal identity work, right? And racial identity work, thinking about our culture. So, man. Yeah. The more I, more I hear this, the more I listen, I really like this framework. I think we got to, we, we got to find some of those translucent pages. And I think we got to create a document. <laughs> we got to, let's bring the projector back. Yes. You know how like, uh, like record players are coming back? Let's start the projector (laughs) layer on. There's going to be, we're going to, it's going to be like Bill, is it Bill Gates? I want a projector in everybody's home. Like that was the goal. Like I want a computer in everyone's home. Oh my gosh. We want to bring a projector everyone's home. So you and I, when we go to a company is we're going to bring a projector. <laughs> like, and, and like we're not gonna, gonna be like, what kind of a like, what kind of Mac do you have? We're like, no, we're good. We got, we got, we got, we got, we got AV figured out. And we'll have folders of like these things in order that we'll just slowly lay down. I think we, we're, all, we're, we're gonna this. intentionally not WD forty the wheels because yeah. we make sure it's squeaking <laughs> as it comes in. You know, <laughs> oh god, uh, I we're on to something, folks. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but you, you know what's good, Paul, about you talking about like the culture is that that's my second thing here. My second ah, point is again. like, I mean, you're just you're always one step ahead of me <laughs> is everyone's culture needs to be valued or a culture needs to be valued. Right. So your example of valuing everyone's culture last episode through Brad and Amal was so good. So if everyone remembers that, you know, Brad and Amal, they were having a coffee. Brad's culture would be 10 minutes early. 
Amal's was to be like more social, take your time, settle down 15 minutes late. It really helped me as I unpacked at the end of last episode. It really helped me think about like my own concept and experiences of timeliness. So my big takeaway from that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that no one culture is good or bad. Literally, we can't think of any cultural norm as dominant. So for example, timeliness. The key is to respect everyone's concept of time, you know, and other things, and communicate with one another to understand what each values and how to best work together where each feels really good about that. Yeah, and to add on to that, you know, no culture is good or bad, you know, I do want to add a caveat that there's a difference between culture with a capital C and then like cultural practices and values. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely some that are objectively bad. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Genital mutilation, sexual cleansing is essentially rape um so clearly those are bad and even when i looked at some of these quote-unquote bad cultural practices you know a lot of them came back to gender to you know race-based like using some of these identities and looking them at at this sort of a you know the the dominant versus non-dominant as a way to to do really horrible things towards other people but then going back to this caste system and saying, well, men or cisgender men should be in power, should have authority, should dominate over women. So these practices that we're doing are justified, yeah. right? But they're the ones in power. So of course, they're the ones who set the rules or the norms, yeah. right? So I just want to say that, that, you know, the good, bad binary is more about supremacy, which is what we're talking about. So, you know, it's, however, I do want to say it's easy to say that cultures that practice general mutilation are bad, but that's not true, mm-hmm. right? It is fair to say that although some cultures aren't bad, of course, the practice of general mutilation is bad. So I just want to make that distinction. That, you know, The point is that all cultures have good and bad components to them, and there isn't one dominant or best culture. That makes sense thinking about those as characteristics then, right? So like workplace culture isn't bad. Parts of it, like white supremacy, is a characteristic that is bad. Right. It's kind of like thinking about different characteristics that harm others or are superior to others. There can be bad characteristics, but Mm -hmm. like overall people's way of life or whatever isn't bad. Yeah. You know, and I also think that that's why it's so vital for us to recognize that there's no such thing as white culture or black culture. And that's, as we have said, like it's a really tricky one, right? Because you know, we went through our cultural identity process in a couple episodes and a huge takeaway was that, you know, culture is shared by everyone. You and I, Paul, are both white men. We have been born and raised in similar areas of the world, but we have different cultures, you and I. We have some cultural similarities, but not all white people share the same culture, as not all black people share the same culture, nor any race shares the same culture. There are subcultures within that, exactly like you're saying, yes, right? But like no overarching culture for an entire race. So that's why, again, I think thinking about culture, the dominant cultural norms, expectations, and rules in the workplace that have been created by those in the dominant caste we're talking about culture here. There can be many white people who do not project these dominant cultural norms and do not advance in the workplace because of it. We've talked about a few examples of these, like the type of school, connections, hobbies, like dominant cultural hobby might be like golf, like I've talked about, right? And I go into an interview, I can talk about golf with the interviewer Mm -hmm. and he's like, I love this guy. (laughs) I want him on my team, right? So like, so because of that, they may hear white supremacy culture and it might not click with them, you know? They might brush it off and make it defensive and push back on that. Creating a culture in the workplace where no norms, expectations, or rules are better than another, but are communicated with employees to be clear and value cultural differences 
will result in more equity and have a huge impact on racial equity as well. And I'm sure like as I'm hearing that and lots of people hear that, like you hear no norms, expectation rules are better than the other. Like people are like, oh, my God, that sounds so chaotic. Like how in the world do you Mm -hmm. do you know what to do and how do you agree on what to do? And I'm just anytime I like even for myself when I have that, I'm like, well, it's pretty dang chaotic right now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, however, for you and me as white sister or male, it doesn't feel as chaotic. Right. Because the norms fit us very nicely. Right. So we're like, actually, things are pretty okay in the workplace. So why would we want to change things up? But for people who don't identify as us. And so, again, when we're doing equity work, we're not necessarily doing it on the service for our own benefit. But we've we've laid out that it is for our benefit. But it's going to feel like we're losing out. We're we're changing things up for other people's benefit. And we're going to you know, it's going to suck for us. But the fact that like we've never lived in a a society where norms, expectations or rules aren't better than the other. It just feels like not even it's not even possible. Right. Right. So because it seems like such a pipe dream, just like why even try? Because I don't think it's possible. Yeah. that's where imagination, I think I've mentioned that before, imagination yeah, is so right. important when, mm-hmm. we, when we talk about equity work mm-hmm. because like the things we're talking about, what we want to see in this world, we've never experienced or seen. Yeah. That's why like we need to tap in our imagination because if we don't, then we're like, ah, it's not possible. We won't do it. Right. But if we tap in our imagination and say, hey, there is a there is a way to do this, then then it gives us optimism and energy to move forward. That's a great point. I can speak to, granted, I the, I was working at a nonprofit, very small team. We were like eight people, right? So changing a culture at a place with thousands and thousands of employees is going to be a much different experience, obviously. But I had kind of experience like that where we really were intentional about trying to create an environment where everybody's kind of values and norms and expectations were valued. And it was hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was hard to seven people but i can say like how great it was working through that and having we we ended up having like a really open communication line it just shows like how important communicating it is and like where are you struggling what's good and i can say on the other end of it it was great like Mm -hmm. it was really a positive experience it felt you know we could all just like kind of be more of ourselves at work and Mm -hmm. it resulted in i think better meetings it resulted in better work at the end of the day so Mm -hmm. i've had some experience with that but like again it was a pretty small team but you can within orgs like there are different ways to kind of think about different teams what you can do different departments different all these things it's it's possible but it's harder with more people but yeah i have seen kind of the benefits of it yeah that's things that are the white supremacy characteristic right to comfort comes into play yeah. like oh this is hard i don't want to do this or this is hard it means it's not working so we really need to check that or um, a dominant culture characteristic dom- dominant perhaps. culture characteristic perhaps yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah we need to go back to referencing resma menachem and his clean pain right when you talk about identity work and how you, know, you and i have attested to the difficulty of facing our internalized supremacy white supremacy male supremacy internalized racism like that is hard and that is uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. that sucks however on the other side of it it's awesome yes right and much much better outcome than if we had not gone through it so i think that's that's kind of we we need to look long term anytime we we have that i I think it's it's sort of a knee-jerk reaction with well i mean a lot of people it's human i'd say but with white people like oh this is hard let's not do it to think long term and say yes this is hard and we're gonna have a, a much better outcome for everyone if we go through this yeah that's great you know what I think we need right now, Paul? What's that? A website break. Oh, yes. we're having my such, favorite. We're having such a good conversation here. Let's take a breather and talk about our website. I'm not going to call it a new website this time, but it's out it's there. It's not new anymore. So if this is your first time listening, welcome. Also, you might want to listen to the white supremacy episode to know what we're talking about. But, but also, we have a website 
www.themodernwhiteman.com. You can learn more about our work. You can see some blog posts that we put up. I have to admit, again, second child, it has been forever since I've written a blog post, but I do want to do that more. And please sign up for our newsletter and stay in the loop with different things that we have going on with The Modern White Man. We have some exciting ideas for moving forward as we continue on this journey together, so you can sign up for that. And please reach out to us. We love hearing from listeners. Let us know if something really is resonating with you or you disagree with something or you want to hear about another topic. Having a community like that is really important. So check out our website, reach out, and subscribe to that newsletter. All right, Paul, I have uh, three more examples of of how I see this dominant culture uh, or why I think thinking of it as dominant culture in the workplace could be helpful. The third one is comes from one of our favorites, Ibram X. Kendi, the powerless defense. So perhaps you will remember us talking about the powerless defense in our past episodes when we used Kendi's definition of racist and anti-racist. So essentially he used to think that black and brown people couldn't be racist, that only white people could be because they had the power. But now he has changed that. And one of the reasons is he says how it strips black policymakers, managers, and executives of all their power. Like Kendi goes through these examples that we talked about in that past episode of all the black judges, policemen, and women, the 16 black CEOs who've run Fortune 500 companies since 1999. I'm going to pause there again like we paused the first time. 16 black CEOs who have run Fortune 500 companies since 1999. That's 1-6, 16. How many, I wonder what the percentage is. I mean, how many companies is that? And then you think how many leaders from since 1999, you know what I mean? Right. Like, I bet it's like 1%. Yeah, 0.081, yeah, 1%. So saying that if only white people have the power to be racist and enact anti-racist policies, then black and brown people have no power to enact anti-racist policies, right? And diversify their workforce. So because racism is a marriage of racist ideas and racist policies, Kendi claims that black people can have racist ideas and enact racist policies. That's why having that definition is so important. As he says, white people control the United States, but not absolutely, right? So Why I think this is interesting thinking about the dominant cultural norms is that people of color, those leaders, can ascribe to these dominant cultural norms in the workplace, rise to the top, and perpetuate those dominant characteristics. And it can really keep those who don't subscribe to those characteristics, you know, down lower on that org chart. Many times you hear people of color describe this as needing to code switch in the workplace, right, to get ahead. Creating equity is eliminating those dominant cultural norms, expectations, and rules so no one has to code switch but can bring their authentic Mm. selves. So people of color who have gotten to these positions have the power to break down the dominant cultural norms as well and create more equity, right? So that's why I think of like the powerless defense is really interesting by Kendi. I mean, everything Kendi says is so insightful. That one is really important to think about. So labeling these characteristics as the dominant culture, I believe better encompasses that. Yeah, it's really well said. And even I, I hear all the time that white supremacy actually should be white male supremacy, right? Like, So you could have, like you said, a person of color in a leadership position, but they're still perpetuating misogyny. They're still perpetuating homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia, like all the, you know, the isms and the right. phobias, right? Maybe they're, they're making efforts with racial equity and, and dismantling race within the organization. That's great. Again, we talked about that, like, and that's 
sometimes okay to have a laser focus on one thing, but you're also, you might be perpetuating all the other isms and phobias that make up a caste system. And, and that can be tricky, right? Because yeah. because you have a person in color, of color in a leadership position, you make progress, and but, you know, it could be tricky to, to call them out and on these other things. And yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of thinking a lot. I don't have a formed thought. Well, I think like it, well, I think that's why I think the label of dominant culture mm-hmm. is so helpful mm-hmm. because if we're in a place of work and we see a leader of color who's perpetuating dominant cultural norms like, you know, patriarchy or these types of characteristics, it can be easier as an organization to address it and be like, "Hey, we want to break down the dominant cultural norms," right? Instead yep. of being like, "Hey, you're displaying white supremacy," right? Or yeah. like white supremacy characteristics. It's like, are they or is it the dominant culture, you know? I don't know. Well, and that, and that also, it makes me think of individualism, you know, like even just what I was thinking of, like it's not never, it's never one person who's perpetuating this thing. And also the the culture already existed before this person came into it, mm-hmm. right? 99 times out of 100 or 99.9 times out of 100, there already was a male, cisgender male dominant, heteronormative dominant culture in place when any leader comes in. So it's not like they are the ones that fault for perpetuating right. it. The system was already in place, so yeah. everyone is complicit in the system. But we live in a in a, a culture where the dominant culture is individualism, where the solution to the problem is finding that one bad egg, right? And we, we maybe right. talked about this in, in the police force too. Finding that one bad egg, getting rid of them. Oh, we fixed the problem, right? Instead of looking at the culture, and so yeah, I think I think it's really um, that's a really good point to again why I like this culture as the lens yeah. to to look at everything. All right, the fourth thing. We've already talked quite a bit about this, but it's patriarchy. I mean, I, yeah. these characteristics uphold patriarchy. And again, a definition of patriarchy is essentially that men should be in power. Is that essentially a good definition of patriarchy for those who might not know? Well, yeah, patriarchy is Just, is that a cisgender male is dominant, should be, yeah, should be in power. Should be in power is should the best kind of, yeah. Yeah, the man of the house and everything is, is, and I think it also goes in a language, right? Like we talk about firemen, male men, all the other men, I can't think totally. of the other, but you know, like the, the, the language is really laced with masculinity. Yeah. Here's a good Oxford definition. Oh, a system go. of society or government in which men hold the power and women are largely excluded from mm. it. Right. Yep. So And you laid by the way, you laid that out really nicely. I learned a lot in the episode about masculinity where like women were kind of relegated to the household and men took political office, like right. those those positions of power, and then that that has just maintained over time. And there's been a lot of progress, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Right? Does the switch is being flipped or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, that the, projector the projector page is getting flipped. <laughs> How much is too much projector top? Ne- never enough. Yeah, no. Never enough. But yeah, but anyway, listen back to that yeah. episode because yeah. that was really great. Womb Envy. Remember that? Womb Envy. My Ooh. goodness. Wow. All that's, right. That's, that's a big Bring us back. I know. All right. So in the workplace specifically, this needs to be addressed in a massive way. Like a massive way. Let's revisit some quick stats from the past episode on masculinity. We had two. Of the CEOs running the Fortune 500 companies, there are 37 women, right? That's 7.4% of the Fortune 500 ranked businesses. In the most recent data, women of all races, of all races, earned on average just 82 cents for every dollar earned by men of all races. I mean, there's just still, like you could go down the road in inequities for women in the workplace, still an incredible gap. A huge equity focus needs to be here. 
And you and I have talked at length about how traditional masculinity can be really detrimental in life. And for sure, that applies into in the workplace. So for white women to hear white supremacy in the workplace, they may too feel, you know, a pang of like resentment and because they have had a lifetime of needing to battle against the patriarchy to be paid equally and promoted equally as men. So again, I, I think like looking at these dominant characteristics, masculine traits are really, really prevalent here. The patriarchy is really prevalent. You mentioned in our leadership episode, Paul, how emotional awareness is being proven that it's essential for leaders. And it goes against the traditional definition of leadership, which is created by men for men and pass it down. Like who's taking over? Who's the next man, right? It's been perpetuated forever. Mm -hmm. So like thinking about our projector book that we're flipping through our pages, like maybe it's the dominant culture characteristics. First page, white supremacy, right? Is a characteristic. The next one might be like patriarchy, mm -hmm. right? Um, it, I mean, it's, it's a big equity piece that mm -hmm. needs to be addressed in a big way. So I think dominant culture really encompasses that. All right, finally, the last one, gender identity and sexuality. So we've talked about this as well. Dominant cultural norms, expectations, and rules includes gender identity and sexuality with cisgender, heterosexual male on the top. I want to revisit cisgender definition, which we've defined in the past. That is when you're assigned sex at birth. That's based on things like your genes and genitals and all those things, right? Male or female aligns with how you identify. Mm -hmm. So I identify as a male that aligns with my assigned sex at birth as a male. That's what cisgender is for those who needed a reminder. And, and then heterosexual is on the top. So heterosexual, right? Straight male are at the top. So that too is represented in the dominant characteristics. This is no small matter. So according to Mosier, that's an organization located here in Minnesota that works to advance employment equity for everyone LGBTQ. Because of those dominant cultural norms, 46% of LGBTQ talent remain closeted at work. 19% of Gen Z identify as queer. So we're seeing a new generation where a lot of people are not subscribing to what their assigned sex are at birth. And in Minnesota, for example, $500 million are the losses in productivity due to LGBTQ-related workplace hostility. So to be one's authentic self at work where they can be respected and valued not only increases happiness, it creates more productivity with a healthy environment. And white supremacy really doesn't account for the white LGBTQ folks, right, where there's much work to be done for equity to combat those dominant cultural norms as well. So that's just another page in the dominant cultural pamphlet. So to wrap it up, Paul, first off, Timo Kuhn's work is amazing. The characteristics that she lays out really insightful stuff. She really walks the walk with collective action as well. She's really humble and gives a lot of credit to other people and demonstrates how the work is fluid, can be used in different ways and stresses the both and. And that's a big one that you've reminded me of always both and. It always comes up. It's so helpful. It's not either or, it's both and, right? And she mentions on her website something I like a lot and I think wraps up what we talked about in this episode well. She says, my hope is that this website offers something useful and that you, the reader, take what you find and develop it further. Please take whatever wisdom you find here and make it grow. Correct whatever mistakes you find. Create something deeper, wiser, better, and put it out into the world to help us all. I just love that. Mm -hmm. I most definitely don't think I've created anything deeper or wiser here by any means, but it's collective action, right? Collective action makes things grow and we build off one another. With the work I want to do and finding my place, I really think what makes sense to me is looking at these characteristics as the dominant cultural norms and adding white supremacy as one of those characteristics. 
Again, this is not a zero-sum game. With race, the dominant cultural norm is being white. It is our society's signal for their place in the caste system, right? In that hierarchy. And then there are those others. For sex, the dominant cultural norm is being male. For gender and sexuality, the dominant cultural norm is being cisgender and heterosexual. For education, the dominant cultural norm is to have a four-year college degree at a top institution. For socioeconomics, the dominant cultural norm is to be upper middle class and above that allows flexibility and the ability to talk to vacations and golf with an interviewer, right? For timeliness, the dominant cultural norm is to be 10 minutes early. For appearance, the dominant cultural norm is to wear a suit and tie and be clean cut. For being confronted with an inequity, the dominant cultural expectation is to deny, defend, and have the right to comfort. For success, the dominant cultural idea is individualism and meritocracy. You know, you can go on and on in our book of dominant cultural norms, right? All of these perpetuate inequities and ensure that those in the dominant group who meet those dominant characteristics stay at the top. Focusing on white supremacy with all of those other characteristics will result in progress towards equity where all people with all identities, cultures, and lived experiences are valued equally. That's well well said. And I'll just add here, you know, as you're listing all these dominant cultural norms, I'm thinking, oh, that's all me. Every single one mm. of those is me. Five, six years ago, I would have just gone into a deep shame spiral, mm, right? Yeah. And be like, oh, well, that means I'm a horrible person. Status five. Because, shame yeah. Shame and guilt, right? Right. Because yep. I fit all these identities. That means I perpetuate all these horrible inequities. It's just creating all this harm in the world. And I just go into the shame spiral. Woe is me. This is terrible, right? And that is a real status, right? I'm not, but I think this speaks to the importance of looking at that ladder of empowerment and moving along. Now I see that and be like, okay, yes, that is me. Yes, that is creating lots of harm in this world. And I, I can do something about yeah, it. Yeah, totally. Right? Yeah. That, that's where that positive identity comes in, like, and the both and, yeah. right? I can both feel some guilt about that, right? Guilt isn't necessarily bad. Guilt is, I love Brene Brown. Guilt is, I did something bad or this is bad. Shame is I am bad. Yeah. It's a very, very important mm-hmm. distinction. There's still some guilt there, and I'll always feel that. And I think it's important to feel some guilt because it, it creates action. Yeah. And I can also feel some some sense of pride, like, hey, I have a part to play here. I can do something about these inequities. Yeah. So just, you know, if you were hearing that and being like, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, it's important to just, again, be like, okay, yes, that's me, and I got work to do. Yeah, yeah. We're understanding the reality around us. It doesn't make us bad. Like, right. none of, we are all have these hierarchies in this caste system yep. instilled in us. We want to recognize that. It doesn't, like, take away from what we've done, too. I think that's another mm. good point, too. It's not like, you know, it's saying that you're only getting to where you are because of you're at the top of all these things. Like, mm. yeah, I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that all, you know, people work really hard to get where they are. And recognize that privilege, yeah, has probably helped you out along the way if you if you check a lot of these boxes. But it doesn't take away from what you've done or who you are. Yep. And these aren't bad, right? Like, if you still like all these dominant cultures, these characteristics, that's okay. You, th- yep. If that's you, yep. that's great. Like, do all those things. But it's not better than others. It yes. shouldn't be valued more than others. Yes, that's a really so good you point. Have, yeah, in the same way with all these things, like I probably will still always be 10 minutes early to every meeting. Mm-hmm. That's not bad. Mm-hmm. I will probably always still be clean cut with my awesome mustache for the rest <laughs> of my life. That's not yes, bad, yes. right? But like things that aren't that aren't bad either. So how do you value both mm-hmm. equally? So mm-hmm. that's a good point to call out. Really well said. Thanks, Paul. This was a good discussion. It really helped me to think about what I want to do in the workplace and how I think about it, how I want to articulate it. So thank you for that discussion. And thanks for everybody who uh, 
sat through a lot of the uh, framing up yeah. of that. If you woke up towards the end, <laughs> you got something. But so thank you, and until next time, let's keep learning, stay humble, and do the work. Thank you for listening to the Modern White Man. Please connect with us on our website, themodernwhiteman.com, where you can learn more about our work, read blog posts with topics revolving around the continuous work of being anti-racist and anti-sexist, and subscribe to our newsletter to stay in the loop with various relevant topics and future ways to get more involved. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share, both individually and on social media. That's how we get the most traction. After all, the more white men that have these conversations, the better. The better.